This is the Monday, January 1st, 2018 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes for a brand new episode every other Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello, history lovers, and Happy New Year. I'm your host, Dean Carianis. And this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. This week, as we kick off 2018, we decided to welcome a familiar passenger into the time machine. It's international best-selling thriller author and sometimes guest host, Tom Grace. Tapping his knowledge as an architect, Tom has interviewed Jean Walker Harvey on her book for kids, Maya Lynn artist-architect of Light and Lines, as well as Hugh Howard on his title, Architecture's Odd Couple, Frank Lloyd Wright and Philip Johnson. Tom Grace also applied his vast knowledge of the Catholic Church's history when chatting with renowned journalist Gerald Posner about God's Bankers, a history of money and power at the Vatican. You can enjoy those interviews in our archives wherever you're listening now or stream or download them at historyauthor.com. I also want to mention again that we'll be airing new episodes every other Monday of the month rather than weekly. So since January has three Mondays, we'll have an all-new time travel adventure into the past for you on the 1st, which is today, New Year's Day, the 15th, and the 29th. Of course, there's no need to mark your calendar if you subscribe at our iHeartRadio channel or on iTunes. Then you'll get us downloaded into your mobile device whenever we post fresh content, and you don't even need to think about it. And remember, there are still over 130 interviews in our archives, where I sit down with authors such as Candace Millard, Rinker Buck, and Lori Holtz Anderson. And we also have a bunch of History in Five Fridays presented by Simon & Schuster, including legendary historians like Doris Kearns Goodwin and David McCullough. We'll be kicking off this new year and this new era with Tom and I interviewing each other a bit, but mostly discussing his sixth novel in the Nolan Kilkenny series titled Undeniable. It seemed only fair that after doing so much to promote our other authors, Tom get a chance to discuss his heroic former Navy SEAL, Nolan Kilkenny. Tom gets a chance to show how he tells a great story and introduce us to this hero that he's created out of his mind. Tom's novels feature cutting-edge technology, and he's kind of a futurist, looking forward to where we're going to be as technology marches on. Remind you of Jules Verne and H.G. Wells, a lot of these fellows who try to imagine what we would look like in a hundred years or a thousand years in the future. I love to post some of those pictures from the Gilded Age where people would be asked to draw up what they pictured life being like in the then far off year of 2000. You can catch some of those on my Twitter feed at History Dean. I should point out, by the way, that Tom did make some history himself. He designed the world's first human applications laboratory for genetic therapy. Imagine what people think looking back many years from now when they want to know the first guy that got on the cutting edge of that tech. You can find our guest online at TomGrace.net. Follow him on Twitter at Tom underscore Grace. Or toss him a like at Facebook.com slash author Tom Grace. Okay. Now that we've tidied up after New Year's Eve, and how did that eggnog get on the bathroom ceiling anyway? Let's catch up with Tom Grace and dig into his new thriller novel, Undeniable. I'm joined via Skype by author, architect, guest host, and a guy I'm proud to call a friend, 
Tom Grace. He's here to discuss his latest thriller featuring ex-Navy SEAL Nolan Kilkenny. It's titled Undeniable. Tom, Happy New Year. Thanks so much for making the time to chat with me here on the History Author Show. Welcome. It's my pleasure, Dean. This is a perfect way to start a New Year's with friends. Oh, well, what a nice sentiment. See, you're, you're an amazing guy. You were just telling me about your next book that you're working on, which is completely far afield. You're an architect. You're so many different things. And I love that. I love that you're never bored and you bring that same passion to everything. And I think that definitely comes across in your writing here. I wanted to start off with a little bit of history, just so listeners feel they've gotten their history fix right off the top, since we're going to be talking a lot just about the craft of writing. You and my wife, Kathy, have collaborated on some genealogy research through her services at historyauthor.com. Your books aren't history. They're not focused on history. It's not historical fiction, but there's a lot of history in them, and you have a passion for history, as you've displayed here on the show. Your previous novel was The Secret Cardinal, and that infused a lot of your knowledge of Vatican history that you displayed when you spoke with Gerald Posner about his book, God's Bankers. That plays so wonderfully here into Undeniable, especially the DNA aspect. That's something that Anyone can do now, whereas it was complete science fantasy 30 years ago. You wouldn't even have thought that this would be possible at such a reasonable price. So talk a little bit about that. What's your love of history among all the other hats you wear? Well, history serves as a background in my books. It, it, it grounds the stories. It gives you, you know, the, the reader a sense of, of place, of, of the characters and what's going on. And then I begin to speculate what could happen with trends that I see, and you look back at history and see how things developed, and that kind of gives you a direction. I mean, what's the old line that uh, if you don't learn the lessons of history, you're doomed to repeat them? Well, in some cases, these these things you know come again and again. I mean, the toys may be different, but people behave the same way. You can take something like a microchip and put it in someone's hand today and look at what Henry Ford did when he first started inventing the assembly line and think if you have an imagination and you're an imaginative guy, especially in even in three dimensions with being an, an architect, that's something that you definitely apply here to your plots. And I think the thriller medium is a great one, maybe even better fit for you than historical fiction because the root word of thriller is thrill. So you want people to have a thrill, just like that roller coaster ride, never never quite feel like they're standing on firm ground, which really isn't the case with historical fiction. That's almost you're going on a tour. So while it can be thrilling, you're sort of treading ground. You already know where you're going and where you are and what time, and you're just enjoying the view to some extent. Not that many of these books aren't really exciting, but a thriller and something where you're creating a plot that there's a lot of unanswered questions and keep pushing the reader to think they know what's happening and they really don't. That's something that I feel you as an architect are really well suited to, and it comes across here in all these books that you somehow, with all your children and all your work responsibilities, manage to keep cranking out. I wanted you to introduce your protagonist to us. Tell us how you constructed him from the ground up. Who is Nolan Kilkenny? How did you name him? And how did he tap you on your shoulder and say, hey, come on, write my story? Well, I'm I'm very fortunate in that I have two professions, now that I'm getting paid to do both, where I basically start with a blank piece of paper and I am paid to make stuff up. I have to create. I have to invent something. And I'll take pieces of old stuff and I'll put it, stitch it together and I'll look at where things are going. So in the case of Nolan Kilkenny, he's actually named after my eldest nephew, Nolan. And Kilkenny's a, a portion of Ireland where my family's from, the Tipperary Kilkenny area of southeastern Ireland is, is where the Graces settle down. And I haven't quite proven it. I may need your wife's help on that one. Actually, see if I can link myself back to the Lagrasse that became Grace, who was married into the William the Conqueror's family and part of that group of William the Conqueror's group that came across to England and conquered England and, and Ireland. And he settled down in Ireland, and that's how the Grace name got there. Hmm. So that's where the Kilkenny comes from. Now, in terms of, of putting these books together, when I was in college, I was doing some writing. And I had a teacher who so liked one of my papers that I wrote for the class, said, you know, you could actually parlay this into writing about architecture. You know, I mean, somebody would pay me to write. And it kind of planted the seed in my head that this could be fun. But rather than writing about architecture, because I think about architecture all day long, you know, I want to escape from it. So well, what do I like to read? I like thrillers. 
And while I was working for a firm in Chicago, I was involved in some advanced technology work for them where we were joint venturing with IBM. They were divided into soft hardware. We were doing the software for a CAD system that architects could use. And architects are the kind of people who work in big open offices and are very collaborative. We all talk to each other. And when you deal with a company like IBM, you have rooms that have card readers on them. And one person can go in and this is secret stuff and you can't show it to anybody. And so we had to build a secret room for them with card readers and all that. And so we, we set the space aside over the corner of our skyscraper in Chicago. We brought him in to show him. He said, here's the room that we're going to put your prototype computer in. You know, didn't we do a good job? And he said, oh, great, great, great. And they walked into the room and said, oh, no, we can't have this. And so, well, what's wrong? He says, you need to paint the windows black. I said, we're on the 14th floor of a skyscraper in Chicago. Why do we need to paint the windows black inside? <laughs> and they pointed across the street and said, see that building over there? Yeah, that's Xerox. They're the enemy. <laughs> They're afraid of somebody shooting pictures through the windows of these breadboards and of this what later became the AS400 computer. You know, we were getting a prototype, and they didn't want anybody to see what this prototype looked like. And later on, that I believe that was a computer that was involved in the Hitachi sting that the FBI set up because Hitachi was trying to get a copy of this computer more quickly than it was available on the market so they could reverse engineer the pieces, that, you know, printers and disk drives and other things that you could attach to this little mini mainframe so that IBM would reduce IBM's monopoly time on having the only accessories available for the AS400. So that gave me my taste of, of industrial espionage that became the basis of Spiderweb. That's what novel? That's uh, three? That is my first novel. First, That's where I'm I introduced sorry. Nolan Kilkenny. I have him. He starts off as a, a guy who went to the Naval Academy, then went on to MIT to do more computer work, became a SEAL, did a, a, a short stint with the SEALs. When we meet him in Spiderweb, he's just returning to Ann Arbor to work on a PhD and to do some work with a, a girl he's known, the girl next door he's known forever, who's developing an optical electronic computer. And he's coming back to do the software side of this machine to, to test it and make it work out. And while they're developing this thing, they uncover someone who's hacking through the university's computer network to access companies and other researchers around the United States that do work with the university to steal their technology. By the way, you said card reader, and I had to chuckle. That's a little bit of history right there. I'm sure the way computers worked then. But the talk about what that was exactly for people who maybe have never heard the term. Well, the card reader I was using was actually a card swipe device outside, which we still have. I'm, I'm putting them on buildings right now. But mm. yes, back in the early days when I first started playing with computers back in high school, we actually had to type our programs on a big batch of cards and hand this stack of cards to an acolyte who would, you know, with his robes and he would serve the, <laughs> the big box of cards into the mainframe computer and offer a, a goat sacrifice to hope that <laughs> none of the cards got ripped in the process and run it through. And, and you would pray that your computer, your program would run in the computer and everything was done on these punch cards, which I don't think any children these days have ever seen. But <laughs> I, I'm old enough to remember, you know, doing hexadecimal dumps and writing in machine code. The uh, goat sacrifice. I, I never knew that you had a Greek guy running your computer system, but there you go. Although we eat the whatever goat, it takes you know? to make those cards run. I mean, <laughs> I mean, imagine people. Well, even this is history, but even in 2000, people remember the infamous hanging chads down in Florida. And so, imagine those. Imagine your computer is hinging on punching holes like that into pieces of paper, and think of all the things that can happen with paper getting bent and misformed and torn and all. Oh, that. and a hanging chad on a punch card. If it went through, it actually ripped the card, and you would suddenly lose a, a line of code. Oh my gosh! Yeah, that was really tough work. We could play now, and we all have it backed up on the magic cloud. Well, I only talk about now, you know, about bugs, and bugs literally in the very first computer was a moth in the computer that they found that had shorted out a section of the computer back in the 50s. And that's where we get our term debugging, is to remove the bug, the literal insect, from the computer. <laughs> I love that in Ant-Man, if you've seen it, Marvel. And he goes in with some of the ants there that Michael Douglas sends him in with, and he says they're great for conducting electricity, so you could short out electronics with them. That would be a great application. You don't think of it. They touch two things. I mean, they can conduct if they have enough liquid, I guess, or whatever it is in their little yes. tiny ant bodies where it'll make a little jump and you're stuck. So that's tough. And that's the kind of stuff you dig into. I was confused about the number for Spiderweb, and that's partially because even though I tell people that Undeniable is your sixth novel – that doesn't mean you need to start with the first one and read them in order. It's not That's true. It's not Downton Abbey, right? No. You just can pick up pretty much anywhere. Well, it's my sixth Nolan Kilkenny novel, but my seventh novel. Because mm -hmm. I, I dropped a political thriller in there that was not a Nolan Kilkenny novel in there in the mix. But most of my books are Nolan Kilkenny books. The Liberty Intrigue, right? Yes. That one really proves the, the old saying that uh, if you want to predict the future, uh, read fiction. 
it was really perfect timing for it. I mean, it's one of those things that you talk about the election and you, well, I'll let you describe it, but really did. You have to watch some of this stuff unfold and you say, this is another thing about being an architect, about working with those patterns on those punch cards. You start to see patterns in humanity and that's something you do learn through watching history. Tell us a little bit about that one since I want people to know, especially as we look forward here to your next book, which is far afield from this, that you write a bunch of different stuff. Yeah, I'm kind of all over the board, and I was sort of intrigued by the idea of creating an election thriller and, and how to stage something like this. Because an election thriller, you wouldn't necessarily have the candidate running around, you know, shooting things or exploring things. And, and the idea of a thriller is usually the compressed time frame, and this thing would take place over the you know, course of a year. So I, I came up with a concept that I liked, and I proposed that I would have a, a billionaire political outsider guy who's never run for anything. And I put him as far away from the political mainstream as you could find, basically in the upper peninsula of Michigan. I mean, so he's really out there and he's an engineer and he's worked out in the real world, has never run for anything. And he's put into position early on in the book. He, he lands on the world stage because of something he does. And they say, you know, this would make a great candidate. And he makes the most improbable run for the presidency of the United States. And he's talking about making America great again. And he's running against a career politician, a lifelong political leftist. And it's the most improbable campaign in history. And, you know, we have political assassination and real assassination and all kinds of things going on in this campaign. And who would have thought, you know, the, the, this improbable idea that, you know, yeah, a billionaire is really going to give up his business and go run for president of the United States. Who would ever think something like this would happen? And four years later, it did. Makes you wonder how much our desire for what they call the high concept, the big story, really drives our elections now. People want to just see something that's special and new. We see so many TV shows about various crazy scenarios. It's a, probably another reason there's so many conspiracy theories out there because people have seen it so many times. People will pitch, well, we could get so-and-so in if this person resigned and then that person was declared infirm and then that person was, you know, fell. But these are things that really can happen as improbable as it is oftentimes, not something like that, but it's something to be a Jules Verne or to be an H.G. Wells and to describe all those things. Jules Verne, for instance, he famously described atomic submarines and voyages to the moon when that was just a dream, really. It was barely even a dream yet because it wasn't even possible for those to be within man's reach. We couldn't think of how we were going to fly, much less how we were going to get to the moon. And I'm talking about flying just here on Earth, 20 feet at Kitty Hawk. You have Tom Clancy, who predicted a jetliner flown into the U.S. Capitol building. And that was one of these kind of things where you end up with, it's similar, I guess, now to the show that I haven't seen with Kiefer Sutherland that's called Designated Survivor, where you have everybody killed, the whole chain of command, and there's two times the chain of command assembles. One is a State of the Union. The other one is a presidential inauguration. Those are the only two times that we put all our eggs in one basket, and we have that one guy that's sitting out there. Dan Glickman is always my favorite example. If anybody can name what position he had in the Clinton administration, we'll send you a free copy here of Undeniable because that's a pretty funny one. That guy ends up being president. They've got to just sit there looking in the mirror and saying, I hope nothing happens, but if it does, I'm the president president now. Same thing in The Last Ship, which is another show like that. Everybody dies, and I think it's the Secretary of Agriculture you end up with, way down there in the list. Novels like this fire people's imagination. It can't help but bleed over into the real world. How do you go about reading the papers? What is it that makes you look at that and say, okay, you start with that white page staring at you, with, which for so many people is just so intimidating. How do you take what's happening in the world around you and say, okay, I'm going to make it believable, not go too far, not come up with a crazy idea, but how do you work it out where you say, this can work? This is just a few days ahead almost. My problem is not being able to turn it off. But when you, when you talk about these ideas of predictive future, in Tom Clancy's book where he flew the plane into the U.S. Capitol, he did it during a State of the Union address. And he did. He decapitated the entire government. So his main character, who had just been elevated to the level of vice president of the United States not two minutes earlier, is now the president of the United States. Yeah, Jack Ryan. Exactly. And, and I think it was six weeks before 9-11, Clive Cussler, in his book, had a tanker full of liquefied petroleum run aground at Battery Park and, and destroy the World Trade Center. And that six weeks later, the World Trade Center was destroyed. And it's like, you've got to really start to wonder what's in the creative zetgeist out there that we tap into when we start pulling these kind of rabbits out of our hat. But all my books have that sort of element to them. 
And it's just sort of the what if. I remember with The Secret Cardinal, that started off with a two-paragraph story in the Detroit News talking about Senator Lieberman giving a tribute from the floor of the U.S. Senate to mark the passing of Cardinal Ignatius Kung Pin Mai, who was the Cardinal of Shanghai, who had died in exile in, in Connecticut. And it described him as a secret cardinal. And I was like, guy, went to 12 years of parochial school. I knew what a cardinal was, but I had never for the life of me heard anyone described as a secret cardinal. And that dropped me down the rabbit hole of why a pope would name a secret cardinal and the political machinations, you know, the whole temporal side of Vatican politics versus the spiritual side of things. And here you have this tiny little 900-person country that's a few thousand years old, butting heads with the largest country in the world, a billion and a half people, a million people in the army. And they're button heads over these you know, 50 guys who are in prison because they won't swear loyalty to the Chinese patriotic church and rather stay loyal to the Roman church. And it's just a fascinating political dynamic. In the case of Undeniable, well, you, well, jumping back to Jules Verne, Jules Verne had the luxury of a huge amount of time and people hadn't invented atomic energy yet. So he poetically described his submarine as being powered by the same energy as the sun. And of course, he was absolutely correct. It was atomic energy. I've done stuff where when I wrote it, it was cutting edge and pretty far out there in the future. By the time the Spiderweb was published, I was just a little bit ahead of the game. And by the time the paperback came out, my technology was passe. It was actually, you know, archaic. I mean, that's how fast the technological window on some of this stuff is uh, sliding. Um, in the case of Undeniable, I'm doing a lot of stuff with biotech. And this goes back to that project I did back in the early 90s where I designed the world's first gene therapy labs. I started learning about DNA. And I'm fascinated by how this material works and how it's used in police crime labs. And I did a lot of investigation in that in my third novel, Dark Ice, where I went to the state police crime lab and learned how they actually process a sample and run through the databases and how much, how little, actually, I should say, DNA they look at in order to get a probability of someone being a father of a child or, or being the murderer or the person who left the blood at the scene of the crime. I'm looking at this thing and the idea that we're getting so good with DNA and manipulating, and I'm designing new science buildings for people who are more rapidly reading DNA and playing around with it. I said, well, how long is it going to be before we can't trust this stuff anymore, before DNA just becomes data like anything else? And we're already recording movies in DNA and, and decoding them. So we're using it as a, a means of, of storing data rather than ones and zeros we're sorting in ACTs and Gs. And the cool thing about DNA is, you know, unlike my zip drive or any of these other, you know, floppy disk drives, the things you have, CDs, um, we'll always have something to read DNA as long as we're made out of it. <laughs> sure. But, you know, as, as we get better and better at this kind of stuff, at what point can't we trust it anymore? If it becomes so cheap to manipulate DNA, then it's like a digital photograph. It's like the ones and zeros. You have to know where all that string of DNA was. And it's, it's just data. We're all, we all have the same stuff, the same kit of parts to make it. And just this year, just as the book was coming out, as Undeniable hit the bookstores, both researchers in China and in Oregon announced that they had edited the genome of a single-celled human embryo. Now, you think about that. Is they, the, in the case of the Chinese, they said, we took material that we knew would have this genetic defect. And the defect was the, the person can't digest fava beans, so they can't grow up to be Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> and they... they they fertilized the, the, made the test tube baby. When the test tube baby was there in one cell, they took what's called a CRISPR and they infected that cell with the CRISPR and, and went in there to rewrite that little patch of DNA so that the, the one celled embryo could digest fava beans. And then they let the cell develop and start dividing as cleaving as it would in a, in a petri dish. And then they stopped it and they pulled a bunch of cells out and ran them through the PCR machine and did the genetic analysis. And sure enough, their edit had worked. They had removed the known defect and replaced it with the correct piece of DNA. Okay, now that you can do that, that's like cutting and splicing a string of data. I can go in there and change the black hair to blonde. I can change the eyes to blue. I can do all kinds of things. I can make you a little bit taller, make you a little bit shorter. I can go into those 13 little CODIS database things that every legal enforcement group looks at in the United States, and I can rewrite those 15 little pieces to match any single person I want to. And when they do the DNA test on that kid, it's going to show up to be within a very high probability that whoever I want to blame them for it is going to be named the father of that child, even though they had nothing to do with the creation of that child. It can all be done in the lab. We always have these concerns, uh, ethics and the new technology that comes along. And as you're talking about just editing that, I think of how we talk about whether it's cable, when TV first came along, radio, people talk about all these things on the internet. I'm 
old enough to remember working in news when the internet was just really coming online and producing all these scary banners, wild, wild web. And it was, what are we going to do? There's nobody there to, to discipline it and decide what it's going to become. Now with the internet, if things will come and go. The market's going to deal with it. You're not dealing with human lives. Any new technology, you're usually going to have some market force that's a little bit of, of governing it. And we can kind of hash it out without a race of atomic supermen or something crazy like that, or the jokey sci-fi way to think of it. But also these are lives. Just look at the people who are so horribly deformed by the impact of thalidomide. These are going to be real human beings. When you have a government like the government of communist China, you say, all right, now there's the only ethics there is this, is the state, and that's what's supreme. In fact, I sent you an email after having read The Secret Cardinal years ago that recently, it was uh, November 2017, so maybe six weeks before we're talking, or before we're airing this episode, and they wanted all the churches in China to replace the picture of Christ with the picture of the dictator Xi Jinping. I mean, that's the First Amendment here. That's something that we jealously guard. We talk about free speech, but also it's the idea of not establishing a state religion. And that's why hopefully you have a lot of different competing groups that are going to talk about their ethics and their interpretation. But when you start having countries that don't have that, you know, go look around some of the experiments that they're doing on, on animals already. I'd rather be hashing it out in Congress first before we start making these blunders that are written in, in human beings into human life. We saw the kind of things Mengele did. People are reading your book and then they're saying, wait, I remember something like that that happened in history. It might be something like Sam Bick, who tried to hijack a plane and fly it into the White House, speaking of 9-11. And that's just a crazy figure. But there it is. I mean, I thought of him on 9-11 as I'm looking out my window there in Hoboken and thinking of the using of planes as a weapon. If you can imagine it, you know, somebody bad can imagine it. They're not just writing a novel here. They're, they're really thinking of doing something bad with it. That's hard to get ahead of. And I think the great thing here with fiction, a book like Undeniable, is you can make people think about that, but still give them a really good ride. That's what the uh, the writers of Star Trek tried to do when they created the character of Khan. They're looking at the idea of eugenics and creating Superman because we had that issue with Margaret Sanger and Joseph Engla trying to purify the race, trying to get rid of bad strains. You know, they were doing it through selective breeding. But now we can do it where we can actually go and, and edit the genes and edit the actual functions of cells. So it's not that far afield to think that we can make little blonde-haired, blue-eyed supermen if we want to with this. But a little closer to field, just a few years ago, we had a president who was impeached because of a little blue dress that had a stain on it. Yeah. Well, back then, there was only one way to do that. Right now, with all this harassment talk that we have going around, I could see if I really wanted to mess with somebody, steal a glass from the restaurant they were in, swab it and get the DNA out of it, print a whole bunch of it up in my, my handy-dandy little DNA kit that I've got at home, my, my DIY thing, and I'd make my own little stain and it would pass a DNA test because they're only looking at 13 little snippets. They're not looking at the whole genome. So if I can read those 13 little CODIS snippets that the FBI and everybody else looks at, I can say, hey, this guy left a dress there. And if he doesn't have an alibi, you know, it's he said, she said, dress said. And you could ruin a perfectly good person's reputation with a piece of genetic evidence that we all currently trust implicitly. Yeah, the Warren G. Harding story, that was one that I found fascinating for a couple of reasons. One is that his political opponents came at him and said that he had a black ancestor, which was intended as a slur. And Warren G. Harding, probably the only really great and moral thing that he did in his life, that he said, how am I supposed to know if one of my ancestors jumped the fence? He's like, I'm who I am. If, if one of my ancestors did, it didn't matter to him. That was impressive for him. But the more important, significant historic thing was they were finally able to confirm that the woman, Nan Britton, was his mistress, one of his many mistresses, said that she had a child by him. And people denied it and denied it and denied it, including his wife at the time, the duchess, as she was called, Florence Harding. She denied it, didn't want to hear that. Well, we only just recently confirmed that that was his daughter. We confirmed it through some strands of DNA. Fellows went out to Long Island. They found some nephews of Adolf Hitler, sons of his half-brother who served in the U.S. Navy, and they just stalked him. I think they just found a bitten apple or a tissue that they discarded. I think it was a tissue in that case. And they were able to get the DNA, and now they can tell you if you're related to Hitler. And that's that's against those guys' will. You know, if you can find that, and then, then you have the data, as you said, somebody thinking of using this in a bad way, you can have enough of the genetic markers to do something really sinister with it. And if we know anything from history and from human beings, we know that there will be sinister applications for this DNA technology. The interesting thing with the Hitler DNA is it all boils down to probability. 
Adolf Hitler and his sister Paula never had children. And those are the only f two full relations that he has. He's got a half-brother and a half-sister who did have children, and it's the descendants of those children that are the ones you're talking about. Uh, they're stalking and getting the apples with and everything. But we're dealing with, you know, those people only have maybe half the load of DNA that could have gone to Adolf Hitler, and then you get another generation, you're, you're, you're parsing it down so there's even fewer full chromosomes that are left that are that would match anything that Hitler had. So the the, the line from Hitler's is technically it was broken really. There there aren't any known descendants. Now there was one case where Jean-Marie Lorette, a Frenchman, is supposedly the the son of Adolf Hitler from a woman that he had lived with uh, during World War One. And there's some evidence that shows that he may well be Adolf Hitler's son, uh, payments from the Gestapo during the war, the, the treatment of this family, this, this mother and child uh, during the German occupation of France, and then the fact that recently were found a number of paintings by Adolf Hitler that were up in uh, Lorette's uh, mother's attic, and all that is lending some evidence. There's no way to directly prove it because we don't have any of, of Hitler's DNA. Back in 2010, they tried to do a comparison of the known descendants of the Hitler family, which now we're dealing with nieces and nephews and grandnephews, and measuring that DNA against Lorette's DNA and say, well, there's not a match. Well, that's probability issue becomes because there may not be enough chromosomes in common from Adolf Hitler to the man who could be a son to the nieces and nephews to, to, to strike any kind of a, a reasonable probability match. They do know that Lorette has the same blood type as Adolf Hitler, but again, that just says that Adolf Hitler is in the group of people who could have possibly fathered him, and he's not excluded from being the father of, of John Lorette. And uh, that woman who ran around for a while claiming that she was a Tsarina, mm -hmm. Anastasia, they managed to disprove her claim. If they can go to these guys and just grab some of their DNA, imagine what they can do with your DNA test, for instance, from Ancestry.com. I was telling you about that. My wife has done that. I've done it. Her parents have. And so we've all found out what is going on out there. You get new matches all the time when you get that kit. And they recently disproved a lady who claimed that she was the uh, illegitimate daughter of Salvador Dali. They actually pulled him out of his coffin in his museum there in Spain and, and did the DNA test and were able to prove that she was all wet, hmm. but not related to him at all. On Cyber Monday of 2017, Ancestry.com's orders for DNA tests jumped 700%. So this has been going on all year. People are really passionate about it from shows like Who Do You Think You Are, which Ancestry sponsors. These DNA kits have sold at such a clip that the number sold in 2017 exceeded the total number that was already in their archives. It's 7 million that they've sold, I believe. They had them going at NFL games mm -hmm. and NBA games. You, I mean, you go get a hot dog and a beer and a DNA test. Yeah, and they go to places where you might not think if you're an African-American, you experience this thing called the wall where, of course, there's slavery. So you were marked with an X. Maybe you'd have your relatives there. Maybe you'd have your age, but it would be, you know, if you were a male or female, obviously these human beings were treated like chattel at the time. And Ancestry goes to places like Cameroon. You could see one of those, who do you think you are with that? They go to Cameroon and he gets out of the car with his father, and here's this man in an African village who looks just like his father, only he's wearing traditional garb, and they're related, and they're able to find that because they go to these places, and the man says, well, one day they came by, and they just asked me if I would spit in this cup, and so everybody in the village did it for whatever they paid them, and that helps them fill in databases like that. Blair Underwood was the actor, and he said he looked at his DNA, and he had, I think it was 25% French ancestry. And he was just blown away by it. And he said, you know, in my life, I've always felt obviously a connection to Africa. You know, the connection there is obvious. But I always felt a connection to France, too. And I never knew why. In fact, he named his son, his first child, Paris. They've been there, he and his wife, many times to France to visit. And he just had this connection. And that's that's kind of a goose pimple thing because you realize then there's something more to it than just listing those amino acids. There's really something in you there that, that draws you to it. And you could find that out when you get that test. But as starry-eyed as we get about it, people want to take advantage of that. You were mentioning before about how the police, some law enforcement want to get a hold of that. That's tough to say no to. It is. And your your rights, of course, are that you can tell them to get rid of your sample after they take it. And so the only data they have is a little more blind data. And they're looking at just little markers that provide them ethnicities. 
without getting into other CODIS database type things. But those tests are kind of amazing because of you know sort of the mongrelization in in America, for lack of a better word, by the idea that so many of us, because of the melting pot nature of this country, have so many different ethnicities in us and, and so many different regional things. It was sort of amazing because you know my wife and I both did it, and you know, we have ten percent here and fifty percent there and thirty percent here, and you know a lot of different mix. Basically, we're mutts. And everything, but I said well, we, should, we really should have your mother do it because we know that both her parents came from the same little town just out, you know, right in the outskirts of Vilnius, Lithuania, and their family was there probably for twenty generations. And these two people got married, they had their kids, and this is an offspring of that union. So she should be like that. And hers came back one hundred percent, and a little round dot just in this small area in the Pale of Russia, wow. right there on Bol- you know, the Polish border, right there, what's now Vilnius, Lithuania, and she was one hundred percent right there, and that's it. She had nothing else. This kind of stuff is just fascinating. I mean, I have German ancestry on one side of my family, and just for the luck of the draw, you can actually wipe out an entire line of DNA. My DNA test came back, and I have absolutely no German in me. So the English side of the family predominated in, in two generations. Not a strand of DNA from my, my Schlegelmilch ancestors from Prussia is in me. Wow. Now, it doesn't mean my some of my siblings might have a little bit of, of this Prussian ancestry in them, but I'm not showing one strand of that DNA. Well, something about getting through that wall. Both my sets of grandparents were victims of the genocide in Asia Minor. I've talked about that before when I talked with Lou Urenic about his book, Smyrna, also out under the name The Great Fire. And so you really don't know. You you go back a couple of generations, that was it. She was orphaned. The Turks killed her whole family, all of her relatives. She came to the U.S. when she was 15 and lived to 104 here. But there was nobody there that was that elder voice. But there always was a rumor that she'd heard or something she'd heard about having a Jewish great-grandmother or Jewish grandmother or somebody back there in her family tree. And I was always fascinated by that. So I wanted to do my DNA test in part to find out. And I was able to see, I have a trace of Jewish ancestry in my DNA. And I said that I wish that she was alive to be able to share that with her because that was something she could have connected to this whole past that she lost to this whole life and all the horrible things that she had seen and grown up with and all the loss. And still, she was the the biggest laugher and and so much fun. I guess not surprising. I I love my grandmother, but she had just that great impish sense of humor that I, I like to think I carry on in some ways. To be able to give somebody that kind of gift, as you just said there, that that little dot and nail that right down to Lithuania, or to find out if you are somebody that carries that legacy that African-Americans have, or that Jewish people have, where they've been driven out constantly, and they're not able to go back and connect. Imagine that Blair Underwood being able to get out of that car in the middle of Africa, feeling connected to that land, yet a stranger, and meet a relative. This wasn't a second cousin or anything, but it was a relative and the family resemblance was obvious. And there's no way to do that unless you go through the trouble of having that DNA test and taking it. And if you do take it, now it's already in there, right? We're going to get those millions and millions of new people poured now into the database and people are going to be getting alerts through Ancestry all the time. It's not a one-shot thing. And they're going to be saying, oh, okay, now you have possible second cousin match, third cousin match. I'm interested to see what I get because a lot of Greek people came to the U.S. over time. My name is a very, very rare one. There's a Carianus that's way down in Australia, another one who's in Chile. You can really connect with your own history. I, I love that. It's one reason I wanted to talk with you about it. Yeah, it is fascinating. I'm I'm a total DNA junkie, a genealogy junkie for that matter, and, and your wife has been tremendously helpful in pulling that together. And, and of course, the fun we had when my uh, brother-in-law went through that process and discovered he's both uh, descendant of the feet of Roy and, and, and royalty, so I have to genuflect or kneel to him every time I see him <laughs> because he's, he's related to three French kings, and I think I'm related to a bunch of bartenders in Ireland. <laughs> and by the way, Kilkenny is a lovely little town in Ireland. I've been there a few times. It's nice to be able to go and connect. And I love that Blair Underwood example, because there you go, you go and sit right there and sit in a place and feel a connection to it that if you just look at the continent of Africa, you know, maybe where you came from, you can tell a little bit, maybe people from a certain place. But you think of that moment, for instance, in Roots, where you're just so excited. And he says, you old African, I found you. Well, not everybody has that ability as a writer to go and sit and listen to the oral history. This is a way that you can dig through the history you carry right in you. And I I don't want it to sound like a commercial for Ancestry.com. They're not a sponsor or anything, but there are other companies that have DNA too. You can run through their databases and spit yourself in there, so 
to speak, but it really is a cool thing. And I love that you put it right here in Undeniable. This is my conversation with Tom Grace, international best-selling thriller author. I wanted to give him a little plug here. I hope people want to check him out at tomgrace.net. Follow him on Twitter at Tom underscore Grace, or you can toss him a like at facebook.com slash author Tom Grace. The Publishers Weekly calls this book a fast-paced thriller, and I guess that's why that's exactly what our conversation here is. It's pretty fast-paced, and we're covering a lot of ground that I hope people will find interesting and realize that everybody's a history author, however you're writing it. Callahan's Hot Dogs, I say that that fellow when I interviewed him, he's writing history with mustard and ketchup. Well, we all have that right inside us, DNA, your little skin flakes, your spit on the end of your cigarette or on the edge of your glass. That's all your history written right in there. And you have that right here in Undeniable. Hint at the dust cover version here of your plot. What role does DNA play here? DNA is integral to the entire story because I'm playing off the idea that in our history, we've been developing these better and better tools to try and discern the truth. Because back in the old days, I mean, you, you go to the Bible and it tells you don't bear false witness. It doesn't say don't lie. It says don't go to court and lie that causes somebody to be executed. That has a bearing false witness means you're giving an official report. But hearsay evidence and witness reports were the only thing courts had to go on for the longest time. And suddenly, you know, with the event of like Sherlock Holmes, you start getting forensic science. And we all love to watch these shows of the CSIs where looking at the tire tracks and everything else. But then you get DNA, and DNA is a really cool tool. Once they figured out that you could actually use it to, with a certain degree of probability, identify an individual, identify the remains of a murdered victim that you don't, you don't have a face or anything to look at or even fingerprints, but you can pretty closely figure out who they are from their DNA. But it's only been since the, the late 80s that we've been able to use this in a court of law. Now, you think there's 6 billion base pairs in the human genome. Well, they're only looking at 10, 13 little cul-de-sacs. Little snippets. We all have these things called uh, standard repeats, STRs. And so they look at these repeats and they read like barcodes. So like we have these 13 little UPC barcodes stuck inside of our genome. And with those barcodes, you can get a reasonable probability of identification. Or better yet, you can eliminate someone from the group. So when the Innocence Project is famous for looking at DNA evidence and conclusively proving that the person you convicted couldn't possibly have left the DNA there because the DNA doesn't match. So they are excluded from the group of people who could have left that DNA evidence there. But we're, we're enjoying this tiny little window here when it's a useful tool, we're getting good at reading it, it's productive, it's proven very useful in identifying rapists and murderers and, and identifying the remains of victims. The idea of an unknown soldier may become a, a complete thing of the past because as long as they have a relative, we should be able to take a little bone fragment and figure out who this lost soldier was and give them the burial that they're due. But now we're running this thing where we're starting to use DNA to make equipment. You know, we're making molecular machines out of it. We're recording it and using it as computer memory. And it's just, it's a chip, basically. It's a, it's a form of data storage, something we can hack. And so I start looking at, okay, what happens when we start to hack it? What happens when I teach DNA, instead of being a, a tool for discerning the truth, I teach it to tell a lie? And that's what Nolan Kilkenny gets into, is he's put into a situation and he knows enough from dark ice that we're getting better and better at this. So he, he hints that something's hinky because his father, he discovers, is basically blackmailed for a child that, that he couldn't possibly have fathered. But the DNA test, the paternity test, says you're the father of the child. And he begins to dive into this thing about how could this be done, who could do it, and gets involved in a much larger crime that has global implications to it. But it's the idea of genetic blackmail, that this kind of evidence could be manufactured in a lab. Like that, that, what I was alluding to before. I mean, you just think about it. What if Clinton didn't do what he did? But what if the blue dress showed up and, and it has DNA on it? And they do the test and says, this matches you. And you know it couldn't possibly be you, but here's the dress with the stuff on it. What do you do? Or look at Thomas Jefferson. Everybody's familiar with that. You were talking about how people look at this almost like a lie detector or a drug test. You know, those things are not flawless. I studied science also, so I have a, a real thought in my head or a real passion for the fact that, hey, don't race through this. There's a margin of error here. So you have that. It's probability. It's yeah, not and exact. And you're not looking at the whole genome. You're looking at just enough to kind of get you in the ballpark. But in the case of a paternity test, I could fill Michigan Stadium with 100,000 men. I could come up with 10 who are in the probability of being the father of the child, and not one of them necessarily is the father of the child. 
you can just tell people, well, there's a probability. And then you'll notice it if folks read news stories. And my background from that and from science, I guess that's why it made me unique when I write things in news is you know, you often you'll have a headline, just state something, and then you'll find the maybe and the qualifiers and the could and the mm-hmm. may and the possibility or whatever. And that's really, really tough to do when you're talking about or really responsible to do when you're talking about people's lives and reputations because – And our laws aren't geared to handle it either. I mean in, in the case of paternity tests, you could have the same test, same lab performs the test and gives you the paternity probability. And in one state, the paternity probability threshold is 99%. And in a neighboring state, it could be 95%. Same test, two different legal results. In the case of our advanced technology in the, in the lab with fabricating human beings, up until a few years ago, there was only one way to make a kid. You know, one man, one woman, and that was about it. But now that you can make a kid and you can implant that egg into a surrogate donor... So is the surrogate mother the birth mother? Is the biological mother the birth mother? There's a lot of different things that our laws aren't structured to take care of. And laws and ethics and morality are lagging behind what we can perform technologically. You know, it's the old idea that just because you can do something doesn't mean you necessarily should. It might not be a good idea. Well, and we have now a... 280 character, I guess it is on Twitter. So I guess that'll that'll solve things where it's not short, but people still want to have that quick. To me, it doesn't diminish the fact that Thomas Jefferson obviously had a reprehensible reputation, a reprehensible outlook on race, and it doesn't have a great record on it. You know, he, he could have done at least what Washington did and free his slaves upon his death, upon Martha's death in Washington's case, because she died after him. And she, I believe, freed them right away then, because you know, she probably was very practical, probably wasn't out of the goodness of her heart. She probably didn't want to have a, a lot of slaves there, knowing that if she died, they would get their freedom, which is understandable that they might just decide to trip her down a flight of stairs. But help, help history along there, yeah. Will. Or with uh, you know, James Madison. He had a friend when we, we spoke up Madison and Madison's gift with David O. Stewart. And he said he had a friend urging him, you know, you can do this. I did it. Go. But you can buy a place. You can give these people that you own, these human beings, freedom. You're wrestling with it morally. Ultimately, Madison decided not to. Jefferson, I don't see him wrestling with it. People may know better than I do, but when I read his bios and read about him, I'm not a fan of the guy. I guess I'm saying that as, in that sense, certainly. And I guess that's why I look at that and I say, but even so, we owe somebody like that to say, well, we know it's a male relative that was at Monticello when she was there, but it, but we don't have a direct line of DNA to him. It doesn't diminish it, but I think it's important that we think about that at least and talk about it. It doesn't diminish it. I mean, chances are, like we said, if it was, it was a court of law, the guy would be convicted. But there's many people who are convicted on things like this who don't have that great lawyer. And it also helps you to learn maybe when somebody is said, oh, well, they have a high probability it's a male in their house. It could be somebody alive today. And I think it's educational and maybe fitting that we have a lot of people who are poor, our descendants here, maybe Sally Hemings and a Jefferson male, certainly most likely looks very likely Thomas Jefferson. But imagine it, imagine the little bit of justice that we serve there, maybe that when they come in with some of this DNA evidence that isn't close, people already have it in their mind of realizing that it's not an open and shut case, just like the drug test. For every time somebody says, well, we, we want to drug test welfare recipients. Well, it sounds great, but you know, they, they have pretty high rate of a false positive and of a false negative. You don't want a false positive where you're going to deny somebody a job driving a bus because you think they're high, but you also don't want a junkie behind the wheel of a school bus full of kids because you gave them a clean bill of health. And I think that this goes to your overall theme and something we've wrestled with throughout history where just how much we're going to trust that technology to take out our job to think, to take it over, to think for us, to tell us, okay, this person's guilty. I mean, lie detectors are so subjective too. So I think that's a fascinating thing here with DNA. It's never going to be totally possible. It's never it's ever going to be like fingerprints. Fingerprints are probably be even better, I think, here than DNA because yeah, those are much harder to forge and leave somewhere for somebody than... Fingerprints and retina scans are much better at unique identifiers, as unique identifiers. Biometrics are better at unique identifiers because even DNA, DNA is a blueprint. You know, if you want to liken it, like they talk about DNA being the blueprint of life. And that's a good analogy because as an architect, I draw blueprints. I don't tell the builder where to place every single brick. I just say this wall is going to be made out of this many bricks and, and fill it up. And I describe what the quality of that brick is going to be, but I don't tell them how to place each and every brick. Um, and the DNA doesn't tell you how to place each and every cell. So even twins, 
don't have the same fingerprints, don't have the same retina scans. Although I did read a, a story about a, a triplets, these three triplets in Minnesota, and two of them had close enough fingerprints that the one could spoof the other's print reader on her safe. Huh. But the third one couldn't. <laughs> wow. But the, the, the three were identical twins. So the, you can get close, but there's always some uniqueness to each and every individual. So we're all unique individuals, even if we share the same piece of DNA. I mean, it's mathematically possible that you could have biological twins born from the same parents who were born in you know different pregnancies, but biologically are twins. It's just highly improbable that you're going to get out of the 43 sets or 46 sets of chromosomes, however many chromosomes are on there, 23 pairs of chromosomes, you'll get the same pairs again and again in consecutive pregnancies, but it's mathematically possible. And that's what I guess both history and science are about is about that possible and about just having people not be to that race, especially when we're dealing with human beings that we're throwing into prison often with these things or, or ruining their reputations, ruining their lives, bringing down a president. We could see where people would definitely want to use this. So people are, are it's going to happen. You know, in a hundred years, the, these things could be so prevalent. Look how far we've come already. Look at the amazing thing. I walked by a plaque the other day for Thomas Edison, where he started the film industry. It's on 34th Street. It's on one of the walls of Macy's in New York City. And you think what we do now with film, and people thought that was a little responsible too. You can cut things together and make people sound like they said what they didn't. The maker of Photoshop said he really regrets it. He has some angst because he sees what people are doing with Photoshop out there. So that that sort of upsets him. He doesn't like to see his. Well, his- there's that great picture of Abraham Lincoln when he's out on his date with Marilyn Monroe. I mean, yeah. it's it's just wonderful. And of course, you got Forrest Gump who traipses through all sorts of history in there. Yeah, that's true, you know, yeah. with with LBJ and. Uh, getting his uh, Congressional Medal of Honor. But now those movies can be stored in DNA. And so when you think about it, it's going from being the molecule of life to being a storage medium. We're going to have computers probably within 10, 15 years that instead of having silicon chips or flash memories in them, may have DNA memory in them. It's just when the price finally drops enough. It's a very robust molecule. We're, we're digging up DNA out of, you know, for mastodons that have been buried in Siberia for, you know, 10,000 years. Wow. You know, they pulled fragments of DNA out of dinosaurs. The Jurassic Park stuff... Maybe a little far-fetched to rebuild an entire dinosaur, but we've got some hints at what was going on there. So it's a robust molecule. Speaking of frozen things, you mentioned Dark Ice, which is another Nolan Kilkenny novel. You sort of drill into history there, too. And I love this notion of you're not not just going to a library and doing it. People are really going out there. And that's something that you talk about in that book there. I'll let you talk about it. But where you, there's actual physical stuff you can go find. Maybe it gets into archaeology, but that's that's the real stuff you could hold in your hand of history. Yeah. Well, the whole story of, of Lake Vostok is fascinating because you go back to the 50s in the Cold War and you have all these competitions between the United States and the Soviet Union be the first to do something, to put somebody into orbit or whatever. And one of these competitions was to establish a full year-round man base at the South Pole. The United States won that competition with the, the base at the South Pole. So as a consolation prize, the Russians took um, the magnetic South Pole and they set their base up at what they called Vostok. And they would service this thing largely by carrying stuff over the ice. They'd put a boat near the edge and, and drive things across. But every now and then they'd fly a small plane from the coast into service this place. And the guy who used to fly the plane would look down and it reminded him of Siberia. When Siberia was covered with you know, ice and snow, you'd see these dead flat areas and you knew that's where the lakes were when the, when the thaw came. And so he started calling this Lake Vostok because these things, these flat areas on the Antarctic ice, and you've got two miles of ice here, look like lakes to him. They look like back home. Well, it turns out he was right. There's 76 lakes that they found when they put a, a, sensing, a, a radar sensing satellite in polar orbit, and they tried to take a look at what the continent of Antarctica looks like under all that ice. And they found, sure enough, they got these flat returns. There's these huge lakes down there. And one of them, directly under the Russian station, is the size of Lake Ontario and twice as deep. It's a great lake. You'd be able to see it from space. It's so big. And the Russians were drilling through the ice, again, peeling back the layers of time, looking at air bubbles and what the atmosphere looked like, because the farther you go down in the ice, the farther back in time you go. Which means we've got a big body of water that's sitting there under all this ice that's been capped up like a test tube for 20 million years, and it has all the things inside of it that you need to generate life. It's got liquid water, it's got chemistry, and it's got heat. It's got all the goodies you need to make a microbe like you find in the deep ocean where we think life actually originated. So there isn't a drug company in the world that wouldn't pay a billion dollars to get a glass of water out of this lake to find out what's alive in it, because this can be different than anything we've ever seen. 
And that's the premise of that book is exactly that. And the Russians did just last year break into the uh, Lake Vostok. They stopped their drilling for a little while when they learned that it was down there because they didn't want to contaminate it. And then they went ahead and, and, and finally finished the drill all the way down because they didn't know it was there when they were drilling through the ice. Until somebody told them, you might want to stop. There's a big body of water down there and you're going to pollute it because they were using a kerosene rig to do it so they as a fluid. Once again, this stuff of science fiction and we're seeing it become science fact. And that's great. When you think of the Savage Land and the Marvel comics, we talked with about the Stan Lee, the great Stan Lee and the man behind Marvel. Yep. I mean, that that's that kind of stuff where you just let your imagination go. And today's science fiction is tomorrow's science fact, as they say. So I, I love that. I wanted to have you on here just to talk about this. I hope people enjoy hearing us talk as much as I enjoy talking to you, hearing you talk. Certainly. I, I don't know about me, how much they, they enjoy me on this, this side of me, the science and DNA side. But I have a final question for you. It's 2018 now. Regnery Fiction is offering all your novels to readers fresh so they can go on these rides with Nolan Kilkenny for the first time. If you could peer into that crystal ball you use, what would you like to have accomplished by the time we're ringing in 2019 as far as your writing career and with Nolan Kilkenny? I would like to see Nolan Kilkenny's next novel, which is going to have a lot of history in it, going back to the Apostles right after uh, Christ's death and Marco Polo into the current time, and it's a fascinating thriller that deals with the history running from the Middle East all the way into China. I'm pretty far along on that one. I'd like to see that one done, and I'm working on my first novel for a young adult series that I've been promising my children that I would write, and I finally figured that out, and I've got to get it done before they're too old to be young adults. <laughs> a cautionary note, maybe, or a little bit of advice anyway from Edward T. O'Donnell, who hosts the In the Past Lane podcast. He came on here to talk about his book, Henry George and the Crisis of Inequality, Progress and Poverty in the Gilded Age. And he said to me, well, I started writing this book when my daughter was quite young and my book on Henry George, and she would call it my book on Curious George, and he said she's in college now. So don't let that much time pass. You know? <laughs> Do it so they can still read it now. Well, they, they will certainly read it and they'll enjoy it. They've been watching me gestate over this thing for all, but I had to find a, a good enough story that I thought would keep them entertained, and luckily we have a lot of uh, the next generation of, of cousins and nieces and nephews and all that are coming along, so I, I should have a pretty good audience in my very large and growing family. Well, Tom Grace, I hope that your family of readers will grow now that people can go and binge read, really, all of your Nolan Kilkenny books here from Regnery Fiction. I think they hadn't produced a novel in how many years was it? Was it 70 years? They never had produced a novel. Oh, wow. Uh, it, it was just sort of a fluke that um, they got a hold of a, a Stephen Kuntz novel. The same story with uh, The Liberty Intrigue is that the publisher who had done all the um, Jay Grafton novels uh, didn't want to take on his political thriller because it, it didn't quite swing politically the way they liked. Um, so Regner said, well, we'll take a flyer on that one. And after they did, they came back and I'd worked with them on some other things and they'd helped me out with the Liberty Intrigue, but they weren't going to publish Liberty Intrigue because they didn't do fiction. I get uh, an email from the head editor over there saying, Tom, now that we're doing Stephen Kuntz, do you have anything for us? And uh, sure enough, I did. And they've now created a whole new imprint called Regnery Fiction. So this is the first time in Regnery's 70 years, but whatever, that they've dabbed their toe into fiction. Well, that's to our benefit. I'm Really looking forward to that next book. Everything you put out is great. I also am fortunate to be able to get some of your emails. We have some great chats on there. People tasted a little bit of it today. Tom Grace, one of my favorite authors, one of my favorite people, a lot of fun. Guy that makes you feel like you worked out your brain, you know, when you go to the gym and you work on those machines and you say, wow, his, his writing and his talking, his conversations here with some of the authors he's come on and, and interviewed really makes you think, and that's a lot of fun, plus thrilling. So I hope you will all want to check out his thrillers. Thank you so much, Tom, for joining me today on this special New Year's Day episode of the History Author Show. I wish you the best of luck with your books, and again, Happy New Year. And to you as well, and I look forward to the next time I'm in New York so we can go to McSorley's and have some ales and then toast to history. Again, the name of Tom Grace's latest novel is Undeniable. If you enjoyed the novels of such titans as the late Vince Flynn, I hope you'll check out Tom's Nolan Kilkenny series too. Check him out at TomGrace.net, at Tom underscore Grace on Twitter, and at Author Tom Grace on Facebook. And as always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy of any of Tom's novels at HistoryAuthor.com. 
and we hope you will click through there. Or even navigate through the Amazon banner on our homepage the next time you purchase anything from Amazon. Amazon.com gives us a small percentage of every purchase you make that way at no additional cost in your shopping cart. And remember, you can drop us a like at facebook.com slash historyauthor or follow us on Twitter at HistoryDean. Well, that's it for this New Year's Day installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. We'll be back on January 15th and every two weeks after that. And we'll probably sprinkle in some special episodes here and there. And a great author calls me and I just have to have them on. Remember, subscribe to our iHeartRadio channel or on iTunes and we'll just download automatically to your phone. For those of you who've left us reviews on iTunes, thanks so much and a special Happy New Year to all of you. Well, until that next trip into the past together on January 15th, thanks so much for time traveling with Tom Grace and I, and have a great 2018. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.